Next Chapter Podcasts. The term New South is one of these containers that packages up ideas about exactly that, what we want and need from the South at any given moment in time. That concept of Southern hospitality, that is the real thing that really comes to mind. Again, I think this, to me, the New South is inclusion. I don't know if I would say that we're in the New South. I think we're in the midst of transition, at least in Charlotte. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Everything we need as Black people to be who we need to be in this New South has been given to us by Hello, everyone, and welcome to Our New South, a podcast series presented by the Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte, North Carolina, with the generous support from the Knight Foundation. My name is Kevin Blackstone, coming to you from College Park, Maryland, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Robert Green, a professor of history at Claflin University, and we truly thank you for tuning in today. Over the course of this series, we'll be discussing the concept of the New South and how it's evolved with academics, activists, and creatives. We'll investigate the South, asking questions of our expert guests in key areas like socioeconomic mobility, voting rights, and discriminatory practices that have shaped the South over the decades leading up to today's challenges. We thank you for joining us on this journey and ask that you please tell your friends and family about us. Follow the show, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Okay, let's get to today's episode of the show. And I got to say, Robert, this is great doing this show with you. You know so much about this topic. I mean, how many iterations, by the way, of the New South have we gone through? Well, first off, thanks, Kevin, for that great introduction. And as a historian, I can tell you that there are several different iterations of the New South. You ask any scholar of the South what the New South means, it can give you 10 to 20 different answers. Um, but I'm really excited about our podcast because it gives us a chance to really drill deep into what the New South means to folks in 2023 and 2024. In other words, what is the South today? What does the New South mean the here and now? And why do these meanings actually mean anything to folks in the South? And as you'll see in our podcast, folks have opinions about everything about the South from boiled peanuts to grits <laughs> to sports. You name it, Kevin, we're going to talk about it. No sugar in the grits. Definitely not. Now, the phrase the New South invokes many different responses from scholars, activists, politicians, and lay people. For many historians and scholars of Southern studies, the term New South is invoked first and foremost as an idea coined by newspaper man Henry Grady in the 1880s and 1890s. For Grady, who was a journalist from Atlanta, Georgia, it was his way of explaining to the nation and the world that the South had advanced beyond its Old South traditions of plantation economics and slavery. However, the New South, like the Old, made use of anti-Black racism to keep everyone in line. This was, after all, the age of both economic advancement and convict leasing, a pursuit of national and international investment in the South and also the lynching of Black Americans. And above all, it was an era of promise after the collapse of slavery and the retrenchment of white supremacy after the dashed democratic dreams of Reconstruction. 
Now, there are several different versions of the New South, but our version really begins in the 1960s and 70s with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Both of these acts finally finished the promises of the Reconstruction Era constitutional amendments that ended slavery, granted national citizenship for Black Americans, and also guaranteed the right to vote for everyone regardless of race or color. But this two-year time period, 1964 and 65, is also a good starting point for our New South for other reasons. 1965, after all, was also the year of the Hart Seller Immigration and Nationality Act, which changed the scope of immigration in the country and especially in the Deep South. 1965 was also the year when the Milwaukee Braves moved to Atlanta and the NFL announced the creation of its first Deep South professional football team, the Atlanta Falcons. The New South of the 21st century continues to grapple with the legacy of these earth-shattering changes in the 1960s and 1970s. With the Southeastern Conference dominating college football, Southern varieties of music ruling the billboard charts, and Southern politics proving to be a lodestar for how far the nation will go on either political spectrum, the New South of 2023 and 2024 is one that Southerners of all backgrounds are living through and thinking about. Robin and I are happy today to launch this premiere episode of Our New South with a truly dynamic guest who brings unique insights on both the South and the idea of the New South. Coming from the perspectives of an intellectual, a native of the South, and a Black woman. Tressie McMillan Cotton is an award-winning writer and educator. She is a featured contributor to the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and many global media outlets due to her amazing sociological outlook on American culture and race. Tressie is a 2020 recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, and her book of essays, Thick, was named the top book of 2019 by Time Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, and the New York Times Book Review. Tressie is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and currently has her own successful podcast with fellow New York Times bestselling author Roxanne Gay called Here to Slay. Our New South welcomes Tressie McMillan Cotton. So thank you very much for, um, for joining us for this podcast about the idea of the New South. It is a real pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Um, we understand that you have a relationship with the Levine Museum of the New South, yeah. um, which is from which this podcast is being birthed. What's your memory of that museum and what it has meant to you? Oh, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, where the Levine Museum is uh, located. And I guess if I have a home museum, it is the Levine. You know, it's the one that I remember learning what it meant to go to a museum. Uh, we went when I was in school, but I also remember going independently. And I'm trying to remember, like, how or why. I can't say I was a particularly sophisticated kid, but somehow I ended up 
I remember clearly taking the bus uptown, and this was before uptown Charlotte. For those who don't aren't familiar with Charlotte, that's our downtown, but one doesn't say that. We invested a lot in rebranding it as uptown. It's a thing. Let it go. But you could take the bus <laughs> to uptown where all the other, where the buses congregate, you know, it's a main transportation hub. And I remember being, I must have been too young to drive because my friends and I would take that bus uptown and it was the main branch of the public library. And there used to be like sort of a food, a place you could go get food at Showmars, shout out to Showmars. And (laughs) then we would (laughs) somehow I ended up uh, over at the Levine. And I can remember even a couple of exhibits because I remember uh, once they had an exhibit that was set up like the inside of some of the rural homes across the South. And I remember it so clearly because it looked like my great grandmother's living room Mm. and kitchen. And uh, I don't know, something about seeing something that to me was like so familiar in a museum really struck me as being both significant and quotidian at the same time. And I just remember thinking, huh, the way you live can end up in a museum. Um, And so, yeah, it was my home museum and where I guess I learned how to do museum. (laughs) And did anything in particular attract you to it based on the title New South? Yes. I think I remember thinking at the time that that meant modernity. It was modern. I mean, even the building looked really shiny and modern, um, which admittedly is a Charlotte brand. (laughs) Lots of the buildings, especially in Uptown Charlotte, are shiny and new. And modern. But this one was, you know, sort of at the cusp there of trying to, you know, of leading that. And I do remember just the architecture of it, even. It was communicating something about what people thought Charlotte should be. Um, And, you know, I think it's important to note, this is way before I have any concept of any of this stuff as a historical discussion. Certainly, I don't even think I knew what sociology was at this age. And so I'm not thinking of this in those terms. I just remember having a visceral response to the term and thinking, oh, modern, shiny, new. This is the post-Bill Clinton era, by the way. And there was just this really, Mm -hmm. it's hard to describe to young people today, but as a young Black person in the South at the time, there was this sort of exuberance about the near future. Um, we were all going to strike out and be Cosby kids. And something about the New South seemed like the way to get there. It beckoned in a way that certainly everything we learned in school about the historical South did not. Um, and so I think it was something about that promise, that exuberance uh, that felt like you could go there. I felt if not welcome, I don't. I maybe don't want to. I don't want to overemphasize it. I'm not sure people were outside saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, young black people, come to the museum." Um, but something about it obviously made me feel like I could walk through that front door in a way that I don't think I ever did for any of the other cultural institutions around town. Now, Tressy, I find that particularly interesting because because I think the idea of the New South is one of the driving factors of our podcast. And I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a long time, primarily via social media, and I've come to know and respect your work on both the South and what the South means. So if you don't mind, could you 
Elaborate a bit more on that new South definition, but this time bringing in what you've learned about not only the South, but the country. Uh, for example, earlier this year, for the, or earlier in 2023, for the New York Times, you wrote an essay called Why I Keep My Eyes and My Mind on the South that I think really summarizes a lot of your thoughts about what the South is now. So could you talk a bit about what the term New South means to you today? Absolutely. I think the term New South is one of these containers uh, that packages up ideas about exactly that, what we want and need from the South at any given moment in time. Uh, as I think your podcast shows, and one of the reasons why I'm super excited about it, and especially having your minds on this topic, is that, uh, as you well know, as a historian, this is not a new concept, right? This container of the, you know, the South, you know, the South is too busy to hate, or the New South, or the business of the South, the South, uh, the progressive South, the South is marching ahead, the sort of four looking vision of a South has had these branded iterations uh, since Reconstruction. There's always been this idea of packaging a near future South, and the goal was to break with its historical antecedents, right? It's to solve finally and to, <laughs> to put away or put to rest all of the complicated colonialism, enslavement, political economy that makes the South the South. Like we want to put it to rest and we want to say the South is about more than the antebellum South, it's about more than slavery, et cetera. And we want to sort of, we want to weave ourselves into the national story of America in a new way. Um, we want a fresh page. The way I'm thinking about, the, the way I think about the New South and the work that it is doing right now, I think about the people who actually don't want to do that. Right. I'm thinking mm -hmm. about all of the social movements and the labor movements right now that give me. I'm real cautious with the word hope because y'all know people love to push us to hope. But I am ca so cautious when I use it because I mean hope in the more active sense, not that passive hope, but um, a pragmatic hope um, The I'm pragmatically hopeful about labor movements and organizing is happening across the South right now. And those movements are actually not trying to break from the past. They aren't trying to rewrite the history or the origin story of the South. They're actually deeply embedded in the conditions that created today's South. And they're saying, we don't get a new vision of the South unless we deal with how we got here. And so the new South that I am excited about is not actually trying to start fresh on a new page right? It is deeply aware of the history that created right now. It's just saying, yeah, but we can, we can do, we can solve this though, right? That there are, it's not fatalistic. It's not, and it's, it's also not dealing in fantasy. I think the, one of the other things I'm really excited about is how organizers and some politicians, and certainly I think just a lot of everyday people in the South right now feel really empowered to claim the South as their own, their version of the South, um, which, you know, really resists, I think, this branding that sometimes comes from other places and like puts a brand on the South and what it means. And so I'm excited about a South that recognizes how immigration has reshaped places across the South that is thinking about how labor movements 
are not. We have this like national narrative, right? That labor doesn't, labor organizing doesn't exist in the South, for example. Um, and that's like, would be a surprise to a lot of people I know across the South where there's a deep history of organizing across class and across race um, in this country. And so there are people who like really know their history, but aren't bound to it in a fatalistic way. And that to me is the new South. And so when I wrote that piece, I was thinking how the South that I know is so disconnected from the stories people are telling about the South right now. And mostly that is because of who they listen to about the South. It's like, if you're not listening right now to different accents, if you aren't listening to people uh, from across the class spectrum right now, your version of what's happening in the South is as romantic as Gone with the Wind and probably as irrelevant. No, that's a great point. And I'm glad you mentioned this idea of there being many Souths and many voices in the South. And I think as as someone who was a daughter of the South, who is working in that scholar activist tradition of, say, W.E.B. Du Bois, who wasn't from the South, but uh. spent a lot of time in the South, right? Um, or a Pauli Murray, for instance. Um, so many of these folks who were Southerners were also products of HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And we really want to tie together your personal story with this larger New South narrative. So could you talk a bit about how the experience of attending North Carolina Central, especially, how that really affected you and affected your time in Durham, North Carolina? Uh, and you honor me with the with the company you put me in, by the way, truly some of my intellectual touchstones and guiding lights, not because they were perfect, Polly Murray and uh, W.B. Du Bois, but because they were complicated and mattered anyway. And I think that's just the best any uh, artist or thinker could hope to be. Um, you know, we don't have to be perfect. We just got to do the work anyway and hope that matters in the long run. Um, and that gives me a lot of comfort because goodness knows I'm not perfect. Um, uh, you know, going to Black institutions, Black institutions n- nurtured me and challenged me. And I don't want to be romantic about that because it's not always perfect. Speaking of, you know, there's a bit of a theme there. They're not always perfect, but they're necessary. Historically, Black colleges and universities are part of that twin uh, system of Black cultural institutions with the Black church that create this foundation of Black cultural life and economic life in this country. Um, that we talk about these days mostly as historical figures, but I'm really, uh, committed to us keeping them in the present tense of our conversations about the South. Even as our institutions change and they are undergoing a lot of change, you know, the statistics are still pretty solid that the majority of the Black middle class is still educated at some point in their career at a historically Black college or university. Um, You know, these places matter. Black artists still tend to overwhelmingly come out of the Black church, right? Black cultural institutions are conservatories, they are archives, and they are living, breathing spaces. And that's what it was for me. So when I was going to college, I thought college was Black college. Like I didn't even under, I didn't even understand a different world. Uh, I didn't know where everybody else was going. My parents had both went to historically Black colleges. My mother went to Winston-Salem State and my father went to North Carolina A&T. Uh, so, you know, by definition, a house divided. 
So <laughs> I chose the third neutral way because I'm a good Libra child. And so I went to North Carolina Central <laughs> to avoid choosing um, and then spent all my time partying at A&T. So I don't know what the point of that was. I, I enrolled <laughs> at North Carolina Central, spent all my time on Highway 85 partying at North Carolina A&T State University. So I, I could go to A&T's homecoming as comfortably as I attend North Carolina Central. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was college to me because my parents had attended Black colleges. And what I got from that experience, I like to say, is a, a alternative understanding of what constituted common knowledge, what constituted a liberal arts education. I thought the liberal arts was reading Zora Neale Hurston and Ralph Ellison. I thought that's what every intelligent person was reading. <laughs> so it was a real surprise to me to enter into the middle class at some point in my life and realize that other places had a very different understanding of the humanities and the common core. Um, but what it meant to me was that my knowledge, my experience of the world had been centered in understanding the way the world worked and didn't just happen in humanities and it didn't just happen in social science. I think, as you know, and I've written about this, we got that across all curriculum. I remember watching like Black movies in math class and I remember us having conversations about um, African religions in philosophy classes. And so it just gave me a different orientation about what constituted knowledge that really shaped my understanding of the world. And I think still shows up in my understanding that there's more than one way to arrive at, you know, the truth. And you say that coming from a person who, if I'm not mistaken, you were born in Harlem. That's right. That's right. But you've made your home in the South. Yep. And you relate your understandings of the South through publications that are heavily based in and out of New York City. So I'm just wondering if there's, um, if there's a particular lens that you use to decipher what's going on in the South mm -hmm. to the rest of the country. Because at one point in the essay that Robert mentioned, you argued that Nothing about the future of this country can be resolved unless it is first resolved here in the South and with the people of the South. Yeah. And I've thought about that a lot. It wasn't a throwaway line, by the way. I do believe that. And not because we are so important, but because we are so complicated. And any, mm. any, any social policy, any solution to our most complex social problems, if it doesn't work here, there's there's no point in trying to you know scale it up for the rest of the nation. Um, some of that is about historical forces and their very long tail, and some of it is about modern changes uh, to the political economy of the South. But in in either regard, if we don't figure out how to do it here, uh, it really doesn't matter. Uh, I think that's true about climate change. I think that's true about immigration and migration. I think that's true about democratic representation. Uh, I think that's true about carcerality. It's just education. We don't figure it out here. You know, we can't implement it here. If our vision for democratic society cannot work in the South, then it does not work. Um, because all of our fault lines are so deeply present 
and overt here in the South. And also, however, so deeply alive here in the South because we do still have fairly intimate lives across race, class, and gender in the South. Um, that means some of why the South looks so messy is because we actually have the fight. <laughs> You know, mm. it's not that we are, you know, more racist than everywhere else in the country. It is that we actually duke it out because we do retreat somewhat into segregated communities and neighborhoods, but not to the same, quite to the same degree as other places are able to do. And because of that, I think we just hash out those differences in a way. And so there's also uh, some seeds there for potential that I don't think is possible in places where people have completely retreated from each other. Um, and so there are versions, I think, of liberal um, liberal fantasies of democracy out there that are really built on separatism, that we just don't have that luxury in the South and never have. Um, uh, but to your question about, like, you know, my story of how we got to Harlem is actually also deeply rooted in the South. We're a great migration family. And so we were in North Carolina and like the majority of people who migrated north in North Carolina, we ended up on 125th Street. And that's why that's where I'm born. But, you know, 125th Street in the late 70s and early 80s probably felt as North Carolina to me as North Carolina did. Um <laughs> in many ways, culturally, especially going to church. The center of our lives when we were in New York was the church. The center of our lives when we were in North Carolina, when we were in North Carolina was the university. Um, so mm. in, in both instances, those black cultural institutions just really shaped my whole perspective on everything. And also what that, I think that gave me though was, tr you know, traveling that sort of social distance as well as that dis, you know, actual distance between Harlem and North Carolina. Um, was learning how to translate those experiences. Um, if anything, my ex the lens that has given me on my understanding of the New South and the modern South is how much translational work is important and critical to the work that we do here in the South and how very good we are at it. So much of my career is actually just based in those skill sets that came from being the people who had to build sort of like, you know, bridges across cultures completely out of discourse. Like we just had to do it from nothing. All The only tool we had was how we could talk. You know, mm -hmm. that kept whole communities alive. You know, we talked our way up and down 85 and 95 and it kept <laughs> our culture alive. It kept economic systems alive. It kept the church alive. It kept schools alive. And we just learned to translate the, the North to Southerners and the South to Northerners. Um, and there's still a lot of that work, I think, especially in more elite circles and policy circles and uh, the nonprofit world where the South can still seem like a one-dimensional oddity, I think, to a lot of people. The translational work involved in saying, this is the landscape of the actual South is just something that I think Black Southerners in particular who had that experience are really well-trained to do. So you're part of both migrations. Yep, the one the up and the one back. You got it. So can you distinguish between the two and how the newest one has um, impacted the South mm. uh, in particular? 
Yeah. I like to say of my family that we were slight, always slightly ahead of the curve. We started our reverse migration uh, in my family in the 1980s, late 80s. Uh, I always peg it to the first year that the Charlotte Hornets played. So if anybody wants to fact check me, I remember because I got my first jersey. Oh, 1989, Thank something you like that. Thank you very much. That's right. So I know it was then because we got to Charlotte and I got a jersey and they were, uh, everybody was really excited about this new team. And so we were always just, you know, just a few years ahead. But by, you know, as you know, we now know demographically by the 90s, the waves are just kind of coming with some dispute about how intense and how permanent that migration was. I want to point that out. But culturally, anyway, we do start to see the shifting poles of uh, the center of sort of like Black economic and cultural life in the North and in parts West start to sort of diffuse a little bit. I think we've seen some of those sort of challenges, especially in like Democratic uh, political uh, organizing and uh, Democratic Party politics, especially some of the local and state level. I think as people have moved around and it shifted the balance of power in some places, um, it made places like, I mean, we're still dealing with, you know, I think it's kick-started the interest and power behind trying to control the Black vote uh, mm-hmm. in this sort of new modern electoral political regime, right? Because as people are moving back with more economic power, that shifts the balance of some things. Um, and so we saw that, I think, some in my family anyway, in some of the earlier ways. I remember us moving back to North Carolina and not knowing where we were supposed to live in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. I just remember that being like a real present conversation because migrating, had, you know, a big part of migrating um, in the earlier waves had been you had people there who told you the good places, the safe places to live. Um, and when you are in the early waves of returning home, a lot had changed. And it was like, where do we live now? By which we meant, where were the Black enclaves? Where did Black folk go? Um, <laughs> and it hadn't been settled just yet. That's how we ended up in like North, the North part of Charlotte in an unincorporated area uh, because those things were in flux in the area. Now, that's, I think, really interesting to, to note that with the reverse Great Migration that Black Americans are having to kind of refigure out these things in the Deep South. Um, but I, this actually brings us to a related question about how the South's demographics are changing. Um, mm-hmm. And I cannot help but think about, in invoking this, Booker T. Washington's 1895 Cotton States Exposition speech. Everyone remembers the part where he says, cast down your buckets where you are, yes. and so on and so forth. But they forget the part where he says in the South, you can count on black labor to not be like immigrant labor because immigrants from Europe speak strange mm-hmm. tongues. They aren't they are more prone to unionize. Mm-hmm. But you can trust black workers to not do any of those things and not cause any problems whatsoever. And yet yeah. here we are in 2023 in a South that is rapidly changing. Thanks not just to the reverse Great Migration, but to the immigration of peoples from Mexico and Central America Mm -hmm. and from East Asia as well. So could you talk a bit about how those demographics, demographic changes could really affect the South's culture and politics? Because you were already starting to talk about this, and I think it'd be great to really Mm -hmm. kind of get into this a bit more as well. Absolutely. I think 
when we talk about the fact that there are multiple styles, that's one of the things that I'm nodding to. And for the record, I don't think that lesson goes one way. I think that there are lessons to be learned there among multiple styles, which is to say that I think Black Southerners uh, also have a lot of work to do in learning about the way that the South and the geography of the South around them is changing. Migration is going to be one of the biggest challenges to how we understand organizing and place and identity in the South. And there is, you know, a lot of amazing new work happening around um, language and ethnicity across the South, and it's still a lot left to be done. But we don't yet fully tap into that, certainly not politically. Um, there are a lot of incentives for us not to do that. I think the tact that, unfortunately, both parties have sort of relied on is that, you know, you know, the sort of political, um, you know, the political divisions of a black, white binary in the South. And so both sides, I think right now are invested in maintaining those. But I think labor organizing or organizing around things like housing uh, and access to health care uh, is another interesting area are really challenging the idea that there's this, you know, black-white binary um, across the South. A place that I've seen this uh, in North Carolina in particular is along Eastern North Carolina. And I was there recently with some people who do um, food justice uh, work. And Eastern North Carolina is also where my family happens to originally be from. And so uh, this is a uh, shout out to places that nobody thinks about, Lumberton, North Carolina, <laughs> uh, for example, and where for the record, race has always actually been more complicated than black and white because there is a significant indigenous and Native American population across that part of the state. But over the last 25 to 30 years, it's also been a growing Latin American and Central um, uh, American uh, population growth, as well as points west moving uh, to parts south, driven by agriculture, agricultural labor. And so... Uh, you know, the type of organizing that has been happening there around uh, between groups who work in agricultural labor and people who do food justice across that part of the state is crossing all kinds of racial boundaries that I think is completely invisible to political organizers who just don't care that much about Eastern North Carolina politically. So it's just, you know, you just don't have a ton of politicians going down to Eastern North Carolina and who think of that as their constituency. And because of that, I don't think they see the potential of what's happening there. Um, but people who organize are absolutely seeing it. So it's this is not necessarily, um, I think, a, a, you know, a story that pretends a lot of negativity. When I say challenges to the South, I mean challenges about our assumptions about the South. Uh, but there are plenty of people right now living in those challenges who are having to deal with language differences, certainly, who are more invested, I think, in questions about citizenship, for example, um, about um, uh, national status, than people give them credit for caring about. So, this is yet another iteration of the idea of the New South. Yes. Right. But what you are arguing and what you've written is that, and what you're alluding to here, is that this iteration of the New South is no longer the black-white binary that we always think about. That it is black, um, white, brown. Yeah. Everything. And so I'm just thinking, so what does that mean for the 
for the future of the South is going to differentiate its, it from what it once was or what or what we've come to think of it as being. You know, I think in some amazing ways, it might clarify better what it once was. I I think that if we take up the challenge of understanding what the South is in all of its nuances right now, that there are multiple Souths, maybe it will help us develop better lenses for the fact that there have always been multiple Souths. Hmm. Um, you know, we've always had like, you know, different racial hierarchies across the South. We've always had that complicated by um, different class hierarchies that have emerged across different times that really complicated how race worked differently for different kinds of people. I think there's still a ton for us to reimagine about the stories we tell ourselves about things like indigenous people across the South that aren't really prominent in the stories right now that we tell about the South that we inherited and that we think we're breaking away from. So in an interesting, important way, I being honest about the way the South operates today might give us better clarity, make us more willing mm-hmm. to think more deeply about how the South has always been way more complicated uh, than that. And now that might be overly optimistic, but it's the thing that I hope I'm doing. Now, I can't account for everybody else, but <laughs> I do hope that if I can puncture just once or twice, you know, occasionally puncture people's assumption about the South today, uh, I hope it does two things. It punctures some of their assumptions about what they think the South has always been. And that the next time somebody tells them anything about the South, about what it could be, that maybe they think twice about that. And where do white Southerners fit into the New South? You know what? That is up to white Southerners. I always say, you know, <laughs> I think, I definitely think they should have a meeting. I know. I, I, <laughs> I, would, I would put that forth. You know, the thing about... <laughs> White Southerners are going to have to choose. This has always been the case. White Southerners are going to have to choose how much they want to divest in the interest of whiteness. Now, I happen to think that Southerners could help solve one of the enduring inherent crises of white identity, which is that whiteness asks you to give up significant parts of your humanity in the service of a political project, right? It asks you to give up social ties to your ethnic origin, give up being Irish to be white, and everything that comes with it, language, religion, culture, right? Stories, food, right? In exchange for this golden ticket, right? Uh but maybe there's a version of Southerness that can be written in the modern day context that accepts everything that comes with it, but that can be infused with some humanity that will allow some white Southerners to choose a white Southern identity that helps them divest just a little bit from the project that I think whiteness calls them into, which has not led us to very good productive ends for all. And I have to think that the way forward for that is understanding that there are different ways to be um, and that the people who can model that for you 
are the ones who have existed in the South in all its iterations under the shadow of white Southerness. And you got to take the lead from them. But if you're willing to do it, I always say to, uh, I've said to people many times, I think one of the problems of what we have at that, not we, because it ain't me, I don't ask, but that what has been asked sometimes of white folks and asking them to like divest from white, white supremacy is that we don't tell them what's on the other side, right? So see, I think on, I got to tell you that at least in the South, what's on the other side uh, is a better, more humane, more ethical way of interacting with your fellow human beings that helps you sleep better at night and it comes with way better food. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I I will say, Tressie, that basically what you've done is you just told white Southerners, uh, bless your hearts, uh, but there's something <laughs> on the other the side for you. I do the best I can. <laughs> I do the best I can, Robert. You are right. I say that bless your heart is a sophisticated political theory, by the way, uh, that Northerners have just completely bastardized. They think they understand what bless your heart means because they heard it on like Seinfeld or something one time. And so you don't understand all the levels to bless your heart. So right. I agree with you. Thank you. <laughs> But I, I do want to to kind of pick up where, where Kevin left off of that question because you've you've made a career of being a scholar who's not afraid to tackle these incredibly controversial topics, especially on behalf of speaking up for Black women, of speaking up for women of color in general. Uh, could you talk a bit about what has inspired your public work and why you're so willing to tackle these incredibly controversial and nuanced issues? Well, thank you uh, for saying that. I know not everyone would agree, and that's okay, but I like that you do. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, I I wish it was, I wish I could say, honestly, I wish I could say honestly, because I could say it, but I'd be lying. I wish I could say honestly that, you know, I had some grand plan and there was this grand vision and I had a, you know, a personal constitution that this is who I'm going to be. And no, mo- most of the time, it is boiled down to being in a moment where there were, you know, two ways to go and I just couldn't take the other way. I just couldn't. I just thought, <laughs> I I just can't. I just can't, right? I was just, I'll be in a situation and I think there's a way here forward that I'm going to be able to live with myself and then there's this other way. And I just choose that way and um and not always with as much deliberation as I should um <laughs> but it's mostly worked out and I I I think I think higher powers for that but um even when it hasn't worked out I don't have a ton of regrets at the end of the day because because of this I can't control the outcome, but I do know what I intend to do when I go into it. And that is, in anything that I have ever written, anything that I've ever said, the moment I press publish or I turn it over to an editor, I always ask myself one question, and it is, can I stand by it? When someone comes up to me in the street later and says, you said so-and-so, can I go? Yeah. And if I can even in the face of anger or hatred, then it was worth it. Um, and I hope that when I do it in service of saying, 
this really radical thing, which is that Black women are rational, autonomous uh, thinkers and political subjects, because that's all, that's all I'm ever saying. I'm not saying we're infallible. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not even saying we're always right. I am saying that we have a political position and subjectivity that is worthy of engagement, good faith engagement. And that when you do that, you're not doing us a favor. You're, you're getting this huge benefit, right? The world is better when you do that. And if I model that and I believe it and I show it in my work, if you can't disprove the method, if all you can argue with is that you didn't like that I said it, uh, but you can't argue with the method and can't argue with the evidence, then I feel like oh, the rest of that's your problem. That's a personal problem. And um, that's easier said than done sometimes. I won't, I won't be glib about that. I wish everybody liked it. Don't get me wrong. It would be easier. But I have been told on good authority, by which I mean my grandma, told me that everybody is not going to like you. And sometimes the best case scenario is for people to respect you instead. And so I just try to go that route. And one other question I want to ask, and I'll turn it back over to Robert. Um, but you you referenced uh, the Hornets and getting a jersey and that being one of the things you remember about returning to the South. Mm-hmm. Was, it, was it anything particular about that moment or sport or change in the South or anything like that, 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 that left that as an indelible mark on you returning to the South? Yeah, it was very much about the, the team was like ground zero for our sense that the South had changed, that race was operating much differently in the South, certainly at least in Charlotte, that Charlotte was not the old South, that there was, that you could live anywhere you wanted in Charlotte. I remember that being a big deal. My mom going, well, maybe, you know, maybe we can live on the South side. Uh, you know, progressive Charlotte had a different set of rules and the team was part of the marketing for that. Okay. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And I have to say as a, as a child of the 1990s, everyone either had or wanted the starter jacket of the Charlotte Hornets with the teal color. So, <laughs> um, and we'll have to do a, a separate conversation about the, the joint sports pain of rooting for Charlotte and Atlanta sports teams, but, uh, the, the <laughs> nothing <laughs> quite like it. Nothing <laughs> quite like it. We were both too busy to hate because we're too busy crying about our teams. Crying. But, the Charlotte Panthers <laughs> are on a mission to kill me. Just so you know, personally, <laughs> me personally. <laughs> well, on, on that note, I have one final question for you, Tressie, and this is a traditional end of podcast question, which is what is both next for you and what do you hope is next for the South as a region? I think I'll start with the hard one, which is I hope what is next for the South as a region is just an explosion of what we have been seeing, but I hope other people see it. So a lot of the, again, cross-class, cross-race organizing, really excited about. I'm really excited about the way it's showing up in things like small independent media across the South, you know, which is a real important piece and partner in people knowing that there are different versions of the South. And we didn't talk a lot about that, but, you know, you've got Black queer media in the South. you got Black progressive uh, media coming out of the South. You know, a lot of them using the internet, obviously, but not necessarily all of them. And, you know, 
that is a really exciting space and time and people organizing and telling their own stories about the South as they see it. I'm really excited for the South's reemergence at, you know, renegotiating what is politically possible in the South. Next for me is to to keep writing. You know, I, I had to get my feet under me at the New York Times, and I think we've got a rhythm there now. And um, in part because of some of the pieces that we've talked about today um, and me wanting to make sure that I could do exactly the kind of more complicated, nuanced essays that are what I want to do there. And uh, we do that there and the readership is there and to continue to do that work. And I'm increasingly talking with students who think they have some feel for that work too and trying to figure out a way to, uh, I don't want to say train up because that seems like such a big task, but I certainly try to bring students along the journey with me whenever they want to go. If they want to see this crazy, crazy life of mine, I go, okay, come along and see if any part of this appeals to you. And if it does, I'll try to help you figure out a way uh, to make it work in your life as well. Um, And so honestly, more of the same for the first time in my life, the vision of my future is not a radical overhaul. It's just doing more of the same and hoping I get better at it as time goes on. Wow. Well, thank you, Tracy McMillan Cottom. This has been a glorious conversation. I could stay here all day. I got nothing else to do. Me too. I'm going <laughs> to tell you, I don't get to sit in the company of two amazing Black men and talk ideas too often. And I'm now holding y'all responsible for bringing more of that into my life. So get on it. We will do what I'll we take can. that criticism. You should. You exactly. should. You bring exactly. it into my life. It's so good to see you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. In our closing reflections of today's podcast, we are honored to have distinguished poet, educator, and National Book Award winner, Nikki Finney, who I also consider a personal friend of mine, providing us with a verbal celebration of one of her heroines, the late, great Mrs. Rosa Parks. This poem is important to our first episode of Our New South because it helps Black Southerners and Americans in general reclaim Rosa Parks from the traditional narrative of simply being an older woman who was too tired to get up and go to the back of the bus. Instead, this poem asks us to think about the heroism and bravery of someone like a Miss Parks or so many other Americans in the South who wanted to create what we now refer to as Our New South. I have to write about Rosa Parks, not because she sat on the bus and didn't get up that 18 word or, you know, that statement that just kind of goes around the news cycle every time. Right. Let me do my research. My research says that Rosa Parks was a reporter, was a journalist, took went into the black community and wrote down what Black women had to say about being Black and female in the 1940s. What? Why aren't you telling me that? My research said Rosa Parks was a seamstress, a brilliant seamstress, who made clothes and fixed the clothing of the white people who thought she was, you know, half human. She darned those pants. She hemmed those pants it with such acuity, with such masterfulness, 
because this is her work. You can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be less than I am because you think I'm less than I am. I'm going to make the most beautiful pair of pants for you. When you come in here, you're going to say, wow, that's who Rosa Parks is. A seamstress brings fabric and thread, collars and hems, buttonholes together. She is the one who knows her way around velvet. Arching herself over a river of cloth, she feels for the bias. She doesn't cut, not until the straight pins are in place, marking everything in time. Everything will come together. As a seamstress, you got to be planful. How am I going to make this coat? So I want my young students to understand Rosa Parks' fullness as a human being, as an artist. Don't just give her a corner of history. Make sure you get a 3D dimensional picture of this brilliant, profound, intelligent, dutiful. I don't want to live in this world where I am less than you. That's, that's my role as a poet is to bring that portrait to life. Wow, Robert, that, that was incredible. And I'm just envious of you because Tressie and Nikki are two personal friends of yours. You know, I, I cannot stress how lucky I am to know both of them personally. And I think both this episode and the upcoming episode with Nikki will, will show the entire world how brilliant these two Black Southern women are. Again, this was a pleasure and an honor, and I'm just glad to be able to call both of them friends. Absolutely. Thank you all for joining us. You know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear it, but it's like, this the South got something to say. Our New South is presented by the Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte, North Carolina, with the generous support from the Knight Foundation. Our New South is produced by Next Chapter Podcast, written and produced by Byron Hunter. The editor and sound designer is Kyle Murdoch. Executive producers are Jeremiah Tittle and Frankie Abbott. Our technical producer is Brian Douglas. With special thanks to Levine team members Alexander Pinetes, Karen Sutton, and Cliff Whitfield. Please follow the show, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Learn more at ncpodcast.com slash ournewsouth and museumofthenewsouth.org. Next chapter podcasts.